The world loves bad guys. Billie Eilish broke out on the music scene claiming to be one. James Dean made a career out of appearing to be one. And Jeffrey Dahmer has multiple hit shows dramatizing him as the lead character. Science, of course, has answers to why this is, with Dr. Michael Cunningham describing these bad guys as men who ooze testosterone, which results in boldness that is often associated with exaggerated sexuality. The downside, however, is provided by Dr. Madeline Figari, who hastily adds that these overly testosterone males are typically either rebellious or emotionally unavailable, which is oftentimes why our parents warn us off of the so-called bad guys that are out there. Unfortunately, biology has a way of overriding the wishes of our parents, as it turns out that at the unconscious level, women yearn for muscular men at the exact moment that they happen to be the most fertile. This evolutionary higher calling to procreate ensures that the bad guys oftentimes win. Hollywood also loves a bad boy, but oftentimes fails in their attempts to make them into a sellable character. The good guy has to win, yet you can't have the villain lose too easily at the end or else no one is going to purchase the merch. A few blockbusters have managed to figure out how to properly turn a bad guy good. Take Venom, for instance. In one of the few good Marvel movies made by Sony, the story follows an alien symbiote that forces itself upon a human host. Along the way, hijinks ensue, and a whole lot of people, many of whom appear to be quite innocent, are devoured in order to keep the beloved alien character satiated. The key to such a movie is to find a second villain, that is both more despicable and less relatable than the heroic bad guy. Even if that means finding someone less relatable to us than Alien Ooze. Hernan Cortez is an incredibly difficult character to redeem. He was a no-good womanizer, whose first, second, and third thoughts towards the Native Americans that he encountered involved murder. He claimed to possess righteousness directly from the Christian God, but in reality was merely attempting to rob the land blind in order to add to his growing treasure hoard. The only chance to fall for this bad boy is to place him against a truly despicable foil. Thankfully, history provides us one in the form of the great Aztec Empire. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the New World conquests of the conquistador Hernán Cortés. Episode number two, History Loves a Bad Boy.
I have a ton of respect for the indigenous peoples of the Americas, and in no way, shape, or form take any pleasure in what happened to the Aztec people. Like most social studies teachers, I prefer to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day rather than Columbus Day. Yet keep in mind that not all natives were alike, and the Aztec Empire in particular had some screws loose. The Aztecs referred to themselves as the Mexica, and ruled their vast empire from the city of Tenochtitlan, which resides in the current location of Mexico City. It is believed that they were a roving band of nomadic farmers who left their land of Aztlan on the urging of one of their 200 gods. That god, Huitzilopochtli, informed them to settle down at the place where they spied a giant eagle eating a snake while it was perched on a cactus. Unfortunately, historians have never been able to figure out where the geographical location of Aztlan was, and therefore have no way of knowing geographically why the Aztecs were looking for a new home. Well, we do know that they discovered a spectacular one. In 1325, the location, which is now one of the driest megacities in the world, was home to five interconnected lakes. The central lake, Lake Texcoco, was renowned for its shallowness and provided the ground for the Aztecs' most impressive temples. The conquistadors that witnessed the grandeur of the city firsthand likened it to Venice, for water had an ever-presence to the citizens that resided there. The location also displayed the incredible capabilities of the Mexica people. Rather than delivering them to an already-made Garden of Eden, the Aztec gods had directed them to brackish, undrinkable water. Thus, the first thing that the farmers had to do was to design a complex levee system that would be able to ensure a continuous flow among the five interconnected lakes. From there, they had to determine the placement of their buildings, along with building bridges to connect the canal city. Then came the really difficult part, as the community's farmers had to figure out how to farm on a lake. Incredibly, they developed what is known as Chinapas. The archaeologist, a website devoted to ancient cultures, describes the system as floating gardens on man-made islands that were built by braiding reeds with stakes below the water's surface to form underwater fences. These fences would accumulate soil and aquatic vegetation up until the topsoil layer was exposed on the water's surface. The canals encircled the Chinampa plots, giving the impression that the areas of land were floating on the water. It wasn't just smoke and mirrors, as the Chinapas proved to be highly productive and sustainable agricultural systems. Due to the nutrient-rich materials used to construct them, they provided fertile soil that could support diverse crops, such as maize, beans, squash, tomatoes, chili peppers, and even flowers. The water surrounding the Chinampas provided a natural irrigation system reducing the need for burdensome manual watering methods. Moreover, the canals between Chinapas were home to fish and aquatic birds, 
creating a balanced ecosystem that supported both plant and animal life. Today, the system that the Aztecs relied upon has been modernized and is seen as one of the possible solutions to one of the looming 21st century environmental crises. Nicknamed aquaponics, the urban farming technique avoids soil altogether by growing vegetables within indoor fish tanks, whose waste subsequently fertilizes the crops. The American cities of Detroit and Baltimore have been leading the way in hopes that this Aztec-inspired system can help to eliminate urban food deserts by providing fresh, healthy, affordable protein and vegetables. Food grown in this manner also avoids all pesticides and herbicides, which, along with animal waste, traditionally run off of surface farms to collect within our aqueducts, rivers, and streams. During their time atop the Mesoamerican hierarchy, the Aztecs offered their citizens a universal education. Girls focused on domestic work and ended their schooling at the age of 15. Boys continued for five more years at a boarding school that, similar to the Agoge in Sparta, was designed to provide yoltelete, or a heart of stone, which was deemed a necessity for all elite warriors. While soldiering was the most desirable profession, the boys were also taught architecture, math, painting, and history. A number of unique punishments were available to the teachers to encourage the young men to pay attention during lessons. The organization How Stuff Works informs us that at the age of nine, boys that were misbehaving could be pierced with cactus spines. At age 10, they were forced to inhale the smoke from burning chilies. And by age 12, they could be bound and forced to remain on a cold, wet mat for an entire evening. These punishments evidently got the job done far better than my limited ability to assign detentions as the Aztecs' physicians knew of more than 180 different herbal remedies for the world's known diseases. Unfortunately, they were fully unaware of and lacked treatment for a number of zoonotic and sexually transmitted diseases which would arrive alongside Hernán Cortés and his conquistadors. While many of the treatments have been proven scientifically valid, others wouldn't make the cut on WebMD. Take, for instance, the prescription for heartburn, which involved drinking a concoction of gold, turquoise, red coral, and the burned heart of a stag. I would also go to great lengths to avoid a headache, knowing that the cure involved making a cut on the patient's skull with an obsidian blade. Sadly, none of their cures involved hot chocolate, which was a drink enjoyed by the Mexican nobility of the 14th century empire. They were also the first to discover how to dye cloth red, utilizing a local beetle for the coloring process. Incredibly, 70,000 insects were needed for every pound of dye produced. Although gold was far more interesting to the Spaniards, the discovery of red dye became a closely guarded secret 
allowing its production to serve as a pillar of the Spanish economy for the next 300 years. How Stuff Works reveals that the dye was so expensive that it was used only for the red coats of officers in the British army, and the bright hue contributed to the awe that the Spanish cardinals and Inquisition inspired in Spain. The use of beetle acid for red dye is yet another trick that we have utilized in the modern world, as 10 years ago, Starbucks revealed to the chagrin of vegan hipsters everywhere that the strawberry cream frappuccino was utilizing the shells of dead beetles in order to achieve its Instagrammable red hue. In the angry aftermath of the revelation, they switched to red dye, which while it's not as good for you, I think we can agree that it is far less gross. I could continue on with the achievements of the Aztec people, but that would go against what I claimed in this episode's introduction. For the only way to make Hernán Cortés seem human is to pit him against a society that was far more evil. For that, we turn back to Aztec history and mythology. We aren't sure why exactly the Aztec people were forced to become refugees desperately searching far and wide for a hungry eagle on a cactus. But we know for sure that they were quite late to the party. Land in Mexico can be quite fertile, but there are huge patches of it that, even in our modern world, qualify as a desert. The educational website, Superprof, tells us that during their wandering, they were forced to beg a powerful king for a small portion of difficult-to-farm land. Without anything to offer in trade, however, they sold themselves, declaring that they would act as the king's mercenaries in any and all military endeavors. Land in exchange for military service. That feudalist idea is a great deal. At least until the king declares war on an equally powerful neighboring nation, which apparently happened almost immediately. The Aztec refugees, however, were successful in the fight, but perhaps were a little too successful, for they grew quite brash in the aftermath of their success. The king sent his daughter to reign in the upstarts, living within his realm, but as soon as the princess arrived, the Aztecs apparently flayed the young woman to death in order to satisfy their god, Totec a god which oversaw agriculture, the work of silversmiths, deadly warfare, and the Four Seasons. We weren't there to serve as witnesses, but it's pretty safe to assume that most parents don't enjoy finding out that their daughter has been systematically peeled apart by your employees. In outrage, the king drove the Mexica from his lands and sent them on their sojourn into the desert. The pantheon of Aztec gods had a tendency to get the Mexica people into a lot of trouble, which is where we turn our story back towards the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés for a moment. His personal house standard bore the phrase, Brothers, let us follow this cross of true faith, for by it we shall surely conquer. 
He wrapped himself in religious righteousness, in part to appease King Charles I, who utilized the divine right of kings to justify his absolute rule. Cortez's mission included explicit instructions that he was to convert all heathens he encountered. Utilizing the logic of Christopher Columbus, Cortez was more than satisfied with murdering anyone who did not immediately convert. While he hoped to increase the number of Christians in this world through conversions, he managed to boost their global percentage by subtracting heathens from the population rolls. The core sins of the conquistadors, such as not coveting another's wife, stealing, or murdering, were easily erased by a quick Catholic confession, making it hard to know if Cortes believed anything that he heard while being seen partaking in daily mass. In order to justify the atrocities that were conducted in his search for Aztec gold, Cortes obsessively latched onto the Aztecs' abhorrent practice of human sacrifice. Historian Frank McLinn informs us that the Aztec and Mayan practice gave Cortes what he needed, a crucial propaganda point in justifying the cruelty and barbarism he habitually employed against the native peoples. Cortes's overarching justification for all atrocities committed by his men was that they were fighting the truly diabolical in the shape of people who practice human sacrifice, and as a corollary that he was fighting hard to convert the indigenous tribes to Christianity. Religion justified the sacrifice, as the sun god Wetzelapostoli demanded it for the survival of all life on earth. The mythological story of the god is a fascinating one, as the deity spent all day within the living world. But when the sun set, he was forced into the underworld, where he had to battle the evil forces that desired the end of the world. If the sun god survived that night, he would rise again. Failure, however, would result in the world being plunged into eternal darkness causing all of humanity to go out the way of the dinos. Of course, that chapter of evolutionary extinction was ironically caused by a meteor crashing into the Yucatan Peninsula, rather than the Aztecs failing to make the appropriate blood sacrifices in order to grant their god sufficient nourishment to survive the night. This particular god formed the basis of the Aztecs' creation story, as they took on the label of the Sun People. As such, they felt that it was their duty to be the ones that provided the necessary sacrifices to the Sun. According to the mythology, it was an honor to be one of those sacrifices, at least initially as the belief was that the victim became a part of the glowing orb of light in the sky for four years, before then being transformed for the rest of eternity as a hummingbird. In case you're asking, there are more than 50 different species of hummingbirds in the land of Mexico, and the critters feature quite a bit in the mythology of the land's early people as the Mayans referred to their land as the home of all hummingbirds. 
But just because it was an honor to be sacrificed doesn't mean you wanted that honor for yourself. Soon the sacrifices and their accompanying ceremonies reached levels that were wholly unsustainable. Bioarchaeologist John Verano teaches that all pre-modern societies make some kind of offering, and in many societies, if not all, the most valuable sacrifice is human life. But the Aztecs took the practice far more seriously than their historical peers. Such sacrifices helped to bind large societies together through a shared sense of identity. It also helps to establish social stratification, protecting segments of society by lowering others. As such, it can also be used to head off competition, much in the same way that Stalin and Mao purged their nation of anyone who appeared capable of challenging their authority. Verano notes that the killing of captives, even in a ritual context, is a strong political statement. It's a way to demonstrate power and political influence. And some people have said it's a way to control your own population. Historian Peter Watson is a believer in this last part, writing that the Aztecs of Mexico showed the process most clearly for a young girl was beheaded at the temple of the maize god in a ceremony performed when the crop was just ripe. Only after the ceremony was performed could the maize be reaped and eaten. Before that, it was sacred and couldn't be touched. One can imagine why sacrifice, which began in holding back a few ears of corn, should grow increasingly elaborate and seemingly cruel. Each time the harvest failed and famine ensued, primitive peoples would have imagined the gods were displeased. And so they would have redoubled their efforts, adding to their customs, increasing the amount of self-denial in an attempt to redress the balance. Historian Frank McLinn noted that the principal defect of the culture was a pessimistic worldview for Aztec myth looked forward to an Armageddon, very like that of Ragnarok in the Norse myths, when all would be destroyed and collapse into darkness. Whatever their reasons, the sacrifices were a nasty piece of business, with historian Tim Stanley writing that the Aztecs were a culture obsessed with death. They believed that human sacrifice was the highest form of karmic healing. When the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan was consecrated in 1487, the Aztecs recorded that 84,000 people were slaughtered in four days. Self-sacrifice was common, and individuals would pierce their ears, tongues, and genitals to nourish the floors of temples with their blood. Unsurprisingly, there is evidence that Mexico was already suffering from a demographic crisis before the Spanish arrived. While others will dispute the numbers, there is no doubt that thousands lost their lives. Perhaps because of these sacrifices, the Aztecs were able to establish themselves as the largest and most powerful group within Central America. Indeed, at the moment that Cortes came to the capital, Tenochtitlan was larger than any city in Europe, except for Naples and Constantinople. 
Anna Barrientos walks us through the steps of the sacrifice of Miguel, a fictional character created for her work for the St. Mary University research scholars. The historian writes that the one who captured Miguel would have said, He is my beloved son, and Miguel would reply, He is as my beloved father. At that moment, Miguel would accept his destiny and he knew he would die. There would be three steps that the Aztecs would follow during the festivals. The first step was the incarnation, which was the beginning of the sacrifice, and during this time, Miguel would be painted and dressed up as the god they were going to sacrifice him to. After that, there would be a waiting period, which could last up to a couple of days, months, or even years. During the waiting period, the community would take time to pay homage to Miguel. He would be paraded around, and there would be people dancing, singing, and overall just celebrating Miguel. The second step was the sacrifice. The beginning stages of the sacrifice were all different, and it depended on how the victim reacted. There were different ways victims were taken to the top of the temple. Sometimes they were carried up in litters. Sometimes they were carried on the shoulders of the priests. In other sacrifices, depending upon the amount of cooperation obtained from the victim, they were dragged fighting and struggling or fainting with fear. At other times, they marched proudly up the three flights. Since Miguel was captured and knew he was destined to die, he would walk up the stairs himself. He chose not to play the flute walking up the stairs, but other victims could choose to play the flute and break it while walking up the steps. Continuing his role in the sacrifice, Miguel would see four to six priests standing there waiting for him. He would feel nervous, but at the same time ready to get it over with. Miguel would be taken by his arms and legs. They would bend him over backwards on a sacrificial stone known as the Tetchkal, and they would bow up his chest. The priest who would be performing the price would take the sacrificial knife and rip open a hole in the victim's chest and would stick his hand in and rip out the victim's heart. Instantly, Miguel would die. There were many different ways to sacrifice someone, but the most common one was to present Miguel's heart. The other ways included being set on fire having arrows thrown at you, or being drowned. But the blood of the heart was the most crucial part of the ceremony. Miguel's body would be rolled down the temple steps to scatter the magic substance that was found within the blood. The last step of the long ordeal is known as the epiphany, which begins as soon as the body hits the ground. The bodies were thought to be reincarnated in different ways. Dismemberment and cannibalism was the most habitual way. Miguel's head would get cut off and placed on a skull rack. Miguel's body would get cut into multiple pieces, and his thigh would go to the emperor, and the rest of his body would go to whoever had captured him. Miguel's arms and legs would be stewed with corn, and they would call it Talakaloli. They believed that by eating a victim, they would be soaking up the gods. 
Soon, the Aztecs' search for sacrifice resulted in establishing a militaristic culture that conquered lands from which it demanded tribute, including humans destined for sacrifice. As stated before, this in many ways allowed the other civilizations a chance to buy in to the shared identity of the Aztec Empire. But it also caused a great deal of hostility among the civilizations of Mexico. Careful not to spark an internal revolution, the Aztecs knew that they couldn't continually demand too many lives from the neighboring communities, and thus turned towards prisoners of war for the bulk of their sacrificial lambs. This ever-present need for living prisoners with their blood still safely encased within their bodies, as well as the dominance of the Aztec warriors, resulted in them devoting their training to techniques that were designed to capture their opponent, rather than ones that resulted in their death. The combination of these two facts, first, angering their tributary nations, and secondly, fighting to capture rather than kill would be the undoing of the Aztec Empire. For this next part of the story, I need you to rid yourself of the notion that the Aztecs mistakenly believed that Cortez was a god. McLinn informs us that there has been a long and persistent myth to the effect that the Aztecs regarded the conquistadors as supermen, and Cortez as a returning god, perhaps Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent whose secondary form was that of a pale warrior. The idea of the Spaniards as gods is a later invention, a myth spun to the Indians by Christian friars to help legitimize the rule of the King of Spain. The historian finishes with the revelation that it is clear that most of Montezuma's advisors viewed the newcomers as criminals or terrorists. Most of those same advisors encouraged their emperor Montezuma to show no mercy and kill them immediately. To his own personal detriment, the emperor overruled them and attempted to appease the land's newcomers instead. It's possible that Montezuma felt that so few Spaniards couldn't pose any danger to them. After all, he resided over a city of 250,000 and an empire which experienced virtually no crime. He first sent envoys to the Spaniards to discover what he could of them, Upon hearing the poor translation of Marina, the native mistress of Cortez, the envoys attempted to cure Cortez of his quote-unquote gold fever by delivering to him a helmet of gold. But that only increased the desire for the conquistador to find his way to the heart of the Sun People's kingdom. Next, the envoys attempted to stall his travel seeking to come up with as many reasons for delaying a meeting with the emperor as they could. It was during this waiting period that Cortes formulated his idea of using the smaller tributary kingdoms as his allies. Still, it turned out that Montezuma's stalling almost worked, as Cortes soon suffered challenges to his leadership from men who were eager to return home. 
he cleared his ranks of those loyal to his former benefactor, Velasquez, by continually sending them out on nonsense missions, as well as hanging a few ringleaders in order to make his point clear. It seems that he too knew the power of a well-timed sacrifice. He privately approached the Totolnacs, encouraging them to stop paying tribute to the Aztecs. It was here that he ordered all of his ships beached and destroyed. But the act has become more exaggerated as time has gone on. The story is that Cortes burned his own ships in order to make his men realize that this was the only course that would result in survival. There could be no retreat. Yet in reality, the ships were merely disabled, which would prevent another person from seizing them while Cortes was away. In other words, it was the modern-day equivalent of locking your car doors while out shopping. After all, Hernán Cortes intended to spend his stolen gold in Europe, not in Central America. Beginning with the Teltonics, his small group of conquistadors would march on Tenochtitlan in order to secure the empire's gold in the name of the King of Spain. One-fifth would be sent to Charles, while the remaining four-fifths would ensure that the conquistadors could guarantee their own futures through their ill-begotten accumulation of generational wealth. McLinn tells us that it wasn't going to be an easy feat, as grim obstacles lay ahead, including a 250-mile march, first through low-lying tropics, then through a 5,000-foot pass into a range of temperate mountains, then across another plain, and finally an even more strenuous set of mountains, which they would have to cross at 13,000 feet, before disembarking on the plain that lay before the lake of Tenochtitlan. One can imagine a number of geographical locations where the militaristic Aztec Empire would have been able to easily ambush and eradicate the 300 conquistadors, which had arrived via the sea. But that attack never happened, due to cultural misunderstandings. For you see, the Aztecs would have expected a formal declaration of war from the Spaniards, whose name literally meant the conquerors. But Hernán Cortés only made known that he was coming on an embassy. Thus, in order to maintain his honor and legitimacy, Montezuma believed that he was unable to attack them. Facing no opposition, Cortés hoped to gain enough indigenous support to overthrow the Mexica Boli, who had kept them in fear for more than a century. The enemy that they knew, the one who had literally ripped out the hearts of their sons and daughters for their barbaric sacrifices. The group that was essential to such an endeavor were the Tuxcalans. We'll examine how Cortes convinced them to join his efforts to overthrow the Aztecs in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.